Hi, everyone. We're thrilled to introduce you to Sinisterhood, a true crime comedy podcast that covers all things creepy and gives you the deep dives and thorough research I know you guys want. Best friends and longtime comedians Christy Wallace and Heather McKinney cover things like serial killers, disappearances, cults, and even cryptids. They even do legal deep dives with Heather, a real-life lawyer, like their recent episodes on the wrongful conviction of Ryan Ferguson, a contestant on this season of The Amazing Race. While you're listening, make sure to subscribe to Sinisterhood via the link in the episode description on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Jesse, last week's story was truly an all-timer for Love Murder. What story could you possibly tell that would top that this week? When a woman plummets to her death after falling 12 stories from the window of a luxury high-rise on Manhattan's Upper East Side, suspicion is cast upon her supposedly loving husband. A bombshell piece of evidence will result in this being a landmark legal case. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about unexplained changes, family discord, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. And boy, howdy, did you guys do that this week? Thank you so <laughs> much. For all of your incredible reviews, I'm not joking. I just counted it, Andy. Since February 2nd, I have sent out 68 Valentine's Day cards. Oh my God, your poor little hands. <laughs> I'm loving every second of it. I do it at like at night after the kids are in bed and I take like such care with each one. Yeah, and that's not even counting the ones I sent before that. That was just when I started keeping a list, which was necessary. But I do still have Valentine's Day cards. Obviously, if you ask for them now, Valentine's Day is past. But if you want one anyway, still hit us up, okay? Thank you guys so much. We have a really exciting episode this week. I think we also have to talk about something else before we get started. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. If I don't like write it in our notes, I'm going to forget it. Wow. Yes, guys, we're going to CrimeCon in Vegas. Woohoo. We're so excited. So, so very excited. It's our first CrimeCon. It's our first anything since we started Love Murder. Yeah. So we're excited. We're nervous. We're psyched. And we hope that some of you will be there so we can meet you. So we just want to let you know that we're going. And next week, we will give you more details about what that means, where you can find us, and if we're doing any promotions around CrimeCon. Yeah, we're going to have all new merch. We're going to be there. So we're really excited to meet everyone. And I think we are going to put together some sort of contest as well. Yeah, we're going to definitely try to put together some contests so we can maybe do a giveaway for tickets or something like that. So 
stay posted. If you haven't looked into it, Google CrimeCon and start figuring out how you can come so we can hang out together. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Andy, for that reminder. You're welcome. Um, but yeah, I'm really, really excited for this week's episode. It's going to be really special. So I'm going to launch right into it and I'll explain why as I am going through the story. Are you ready? Sounds good. Herbert and Barbara Weinstein were the envy of their friends. And had social media been around in 1991, they would have likely been the envy of far more people. They lived in a beautiful apartment in a luxury high-rise building on the moneyed Upper East Side of Manhattan, located a mere four blocks from Central Park. Whoa. Yeah. (laughs) Herb and Barbara made a dashing couple. Now 65, Herbert took good care of his tall frame and kept busy with his work as an advertising consultant, an industry in which he had grown rich. Barbara was a svelte and immaculately put-together 56-year-old with expertly styled strawberry blonde hair and delicate facial features. She recalled kind of the image of a society dame's version of Morgan Fairchild. Neighbors and friends claimed that they were the perfect couple, a second marriage for both, and Herb and Barbara seemed to relish in the renewed chance for love and marital bliss. They enjoyed the same things, the same cultural activities, and they just fit into each other's world seamlessly. That is, until Barbara's body fell a shocking 12 stories from the couple's beautiful apartment. Barbara's life and the fairy tale second marriage that had lasted for eight years was officially over. At 1.15 p.m. on January 7, 1991, a pedestrian called 911 after discovering Barbara's lifeless body on the cold oh, sidewalk in front of her home. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. NYPD rushed to the scene where they spied a window open 12 stories above where the once elegant woman lay dead in her delicate blue nightgown. Herbert was discovered uncharacteristically confused and seemingly nervous in the lobby. He told the police he was looking for his wife and he didn't know what had happened to her. But the scratches on his face told the police a different story. So, did Barbara fall? Did she commit suicide? Or did something far more nefarious happen to the golden woman? And how would this case go on to transform the American legal system as we know it? Well, we are going to find out today on a special two-part episode of Love Murder. And before you get your I want a conclusion, Jesse, panties in a bunch, I promise you guys, I will tell the whole story in this first episode. But tomorrow, we're dropping a special bonus interview with author Joni West, who wrote my primary source of this week, Full Frontal Murder, a memoir. Joni is an absolutely fascinating entrepreneur, artist, and incredible author. And she is also Herbert Weinstein's daughter. Whoa. Yeah. So not only is she an incredibly talented artist and author who wrote an amazing memoir. She is the daughter of maybe a murderer. We don't know yet. So the source I used other than Joni's book is a book called The Brain Defense by Kevin Davis, a New York Times article called The Brain on the Stand by Jeffrey Rosen, and a Scientific American article called What Does a Guilty Brain Look Like by Lindsey Gray. A lot of books, Jess. 
A lot of books. There was two books this week and some articles. So I, I, I went heavy this week, but it was, it was deserved because this case is so interesting. Heavy on the literature. Yes. So guys, definitely give the interview a listen tomorrow. And for now, let's get into what the heck happened to this wealthy, glamorous couple. So we're going to start with Joni's dad, Herb. Herbert Weinstein was born in the 1920s in the Bronx, New York. He was the youngest son of hardworking Lithuanian immigrants. His mother was a seamstress and his father was a plumbing contractor. Herb was smart, motivated, and unusually large for his age. By the time he was only 12 years old, he was already over six feet tall and weighed more than 200 pounds. Oh my goodness. That's some like Eastern European. Like boof right yes. there. Whoa. Mm-hmm. 12 years old. And he ended up only a couple years after that reaching his full adult height, which would be 6'2". So Herbert did well in school and he enlisted in the Merchant Marines to serve in World War II after high school. In 1949, he graduated from New York University, NYU, with a bachelor's degree in economics and English, and he dove headlong into a field that would make him a wealthy man, advertising. Just this is a very Mad Men era for that yeah, as well. Yeah, totally. Herb spent the next couple of years focusing on work and building his business before he met the woman of his dreams in the early 1950s. Her name was Belle, and they met cute at Grossinger's, which is a resort in the Catskills, or was rather, that was the inspiration for the movie Dirty Dancing. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. Just picture that, guys, and you got it all down. So apparently in the 1950s, this place was kind of a hot spot, and a lot of, especially New York singles, would go there every weekend in the summer to, you know, cool down, mingle rub some shoulders with some eligible bachelors and bachelorettes. Cool down or heat up? (laughs) Both. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, Belle was a stunning brunette who had served in the Women's Air Corps during World War II and then worked in hospitality in Miami Beach and New York City. So she was pretty adventurous and independent for that time period. Herb wooed Belle and Ernest when they returned to the city and eventually won her over. The couple got married in 1955 when Herb was 31 and Belle was 33, which was considered pretty late for a first marriage back in the day. Yeah. Yeah, Joni notes that in her book too. They had a son first in 1959 and then in 1961 welcomed a daughter, our author du jour, Joni. Herb and Belle raised their children in an affluent New Jersey suburb of New York City called Englewood Cliffs, which made Forbes' list of the 500 richest towns in the United States at number 190 back in 2015. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Doing a little Zillow search around there. It's fancy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's out of my tax bracket, I'll tell you that much. Joni was a bright and inquisitive child who had just a terrible time with her mother growing up. Unfortunately, Belle was an incredibly demeaning and emotionally abusive mother, and she seemed to save most of her ire for Joni. Oh. Yeah. The first part of Joni's book is a lot about the complicated and painful relationship she had with her mother. Essentially, nothing Joni ever did, said, or was seemed to be good enough for Belle. And she berated her and seemed to control her a lot, especially about her weight. As early as Joni being only six years old, 
Her mother would tell her that she was overweight and put her on diets. Not for a six-year-old. Yeah. I mean, first of all, no six-year-old should be on a diet at all. I mean, you should encourage everyone to eat healthfully, but ridiculous. And Joni was really, really screwed up about this. I mean, even in her book, she's talking about what she actually weighed and how tall she was at different times that her mother was putting her on these diets or taking her to diet doctors and stuff. And they were all very normal, if not kind of low, to be honest, weights. You know, this was nothing that would put her in any conceivable range as unhealthy or obese. And honestly, even if she had been, that's not something you do to your kid. No. Yeah. So it's kind of beside the point, but she was a very healthy weight. And, and this was a, a big problem with her and Belle. And Belle really started in on her at such an early age. Like I said, six years old. She recalls that for a birthday or a holiday, she had begged for an easy bake oven, which was like at the time, the hot new toy. Oh yeah. And her mother got her one and she was so excited except for her mother said that she could only bake the cakes and not eat them. Oh, wow. Isn't that the saddest thing? Yeah, that's not. Okay. That's the whole point of the Easy Bake Oven. You're supposed to bake these cute little cakes (laughs) and then eat them. You're not, you know, you're not baking them and then giving them away, throwing them in the trash. What What are you talking about? What was Belle's weight like? Did she struggle with stuff or was it just kind of more disciplinary things from the military or what? So she... I only saw her wedding photo. And in her wedding photo, she's very thin. She's very shapely. She's got that, you know, tiny waist. But okay. I think that this, I mean, we we talk about it now. There's still obviously an obsession with the perfect body or being thin. It's the reason why, you know, the diet industry makes so much money. And we talk about it, how it's bad these days, but it always was bad. I mean, if you look at all of those women back in like 1950s wedding photos, they all have these tiny waists. Like Liz Taylor, I think was the one who talked about her 18 inch waist, you know, these impossible standards. And I know my grandmother, my Nana, who has passed a few years ago, she talked about suffering greatly to try to remain thin. She even did some sort of diet where you went into the hospital and they like put you on a food drip instead of eating to lose weight. Oh my goodness. Come on. Extreme things like that. So I don't really know, you know, what, what Belle's issues were, but she definitely was trying to pass them down to her daughter and in trying to show her daughter that there was one acceptable way to be. And that was thin, but both of Joni's parents uh, were very tall. I mean, Joni's mother was nearly as tall as Herb. And obviously he had gotten to this adult size at a very young age. So genetically, she was also prone to, you know, being tall and and being large and being healthy, you know? Yep. Just like our babies. (laughs) Oh yeah. We got big babies. (laughs) Big, healthy babies. And that's what you want. You want big, healthy babies and children. Belle's term of endearment for Joni was little shit. And the only time she recalled having any fun with her mother was when Belle would play a fun game. And I say that with quotation marks, where she pretended she didn't know who Joni was. And well, like, well, they're out in public, so they'd be in a store and Joni would be standing next to her in line and she'd be like, little girl, stop following me. And like pretend like she didn't know her own daughter. And 
apparently Joni, when she was little, thought that this was a hilarious game and they would just laugh. And she said it was one of the few times she can ever remember just laughing alone with her mother. She said in the book, essentially my positive memories of my mother were when she called me little shit and when she pretended she didn't know me in front of groups of strangers and told me to go away. Oh my goodness, Belle. Belle. In contrast, Joni describes Herb as a phenomenal father. He was passionate about whatever interested Joni, and he helped her with both school and passion projects. Despite being a busy and successful advertising entrepreneur, he was always ready to drop everything to help his kids. She said that Herb was a great provider. He would tell his children that they shouldn't have to worry about anything involving money or getting a job, that their job was school and having fun being a kid. He imparted lessons to live by that the family called Weinstein Wisdoms. Cute. They're really cute. They're all like very good, decent things that make so much common sense. And a big one that Joni took away was one that her father borrowed from the Optimist Creed. And the Optimist Creed states, as you ramble on through life, brother, whatever be your goal, keep your eye upon the donut and not upon the hole. And it just means to look at the bright side, look at what you have versus what's missing. Yep. And this became a big thing for especially Joni and her dad, like often when they had these long life talks and talked about how, you know, you can have a happy and successful and fulfilling life. They always repeated to each other, keep your eye on the donut, not on the hole. So that was one of those things. And there was also, you know, stuff like a commitment to honesty, always tell the truth. And like, you know, that old adage that says, you know, it's easier to remember your story when it's the same every time, you know, so stuff like that. It was like things like that about like how you should do the right thing, even if no one sees. There was a lot of these and Joni loved learning these and, and it felt very solid having a father who had these great values and lessons to impart. Yeah. I mean, it, thank goodness though, considering what her, her other emotional was. support from her mom. Yeah. Yeah. As infuriating as Belle could be to Joni though, it seemed like Herb and Belle didn't have any issues. Joni said that she credited her father's stoic, calm demeanor as the reason her parents worked and never seemingly fought. Whenever Joni complained to her dad about Belle, he'd just say, well, that's just your mother. And encourage her to change her mindset around something that she couldn't change, which was her mother's behavior. Yeah. She said in her book, my dad taught me to change myself, not others, in order to deal with people in life. He simply refocused my thinking in much the same way that meditation refocuses our thoughts and minds to relieve stress. The lesson applied to situations I sometimes found myself grappling with other than ones that my mother had created. Sometimes I would be talking about something that was troubling me and he would ground me with the question, but does it really matter to you? And I was amazed at how often when I really thought about something, it didn't matter all that much to me. And then I was instantly freed of whatever emotional burden I had been obsessing on, (sighs) which is such a good lesson. It's so hard to take yourself out of that. Yep. He had a powerful way of teaching me to relieve pressure from hyper emotional situations by both words and example. He never got charged up with negative emotions. His buoyant demeanor was not only ever present when it came to me, but everyone knew he was predisposed to being incomparably upbeat. 
When I found something troubling about life, I would bring it to him, and he always had a special way of helping me sort through it. So cute. Isn't that sweet? They also said he just had such a good temperament where he said basically – like you create your own enthusiasm. Like you decide how your day is going to go and how you approach it and approach other people is how they respond to you and like. So when people said, hi there, how are you? He would never just be like, I'm okay, I'm fine. He would always be like, I'm terrific. How are you? To the point where people would call him Mr. Terrific. Because that reminds me like- of your dad. <laughs> I know. My dad has some woodisms too. Yeah. That's what we call them. So he, he did remind me a lot of my dad in this description. Yeah. And there was just obviously a lot of love and mutual respect. So Joni grew into an incredible photographer in her teens and her father supported her wholeheartedly. Like he went out of his way to find the best equipment he could get for her. And he supported her in going out and taking these incredible photos. She was accepted to RIT, which is the Rochester Institute of Technology for her photography skills, which actually is where Bethany and Lee officially met. They both went to RIT. Stop. Yeah, those are my in-laws, guys. And apparently they had gone to the same high school, but Lee was an upperclassman. So Bethany knew who he was, but she didn't know, he didn't know who she was. Yep. So she saw him in the hall. Yeah. And she was like, hey, are you Lee Whittemore? Hey, Lee Whittemore. And he looks down at her and he goes, yeah, who the hell are you? (laughs) Oh my God. And then I guess they sat down on the stairs and talked for hours. And then they went out on a date, but my father-in-law forgot his wallet. So my mother-in-law had to pay, (laughs) which is just so cute. And so it reminds me so much of them too. (laughs) To this day. To this day. They're here right now babysitting my kids so I can do this podcast. So we love you, Bethany and Lee. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So she got into RIT, uh, but she decided to defer so she could jump into working under some of the most acclaimed photographers in the 1970s and 80s in New York City instead. Like she went right for it. Yeah, this, she details some parts of her life in the book from this era and it sounds so fun. I mean, she's in her late teens, her early 20s. She's going to Studio 54. She's ending up on these wild photo shoots. She was selling her artwork. You know, the um, famous Fiorucci store? Yep. Yep. And so she sold her prints there. They like bought them as postcards. Wow. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, just as Joni's artistic star was rising, her family was dealt a devastating blow. Belle was diagnosed with small cell lung cancer, which is an incredibly deadly form of cancer. Despite Herb devoting the next two years to his wife's care and Belle enduring aggressive chemotherapy treatments, her condition only worsened. On January 8th, 1982, when Belle was 58 years old, she lost her battle with cancer and passed away. Now, this was a terribly sad time for the family, especially for Herb, who had lost the love of his life, but also for Joni, who was only 20 years old and had such a complicated relationship with her mother to compound that complicated, fraught relationship with a death so early in her life and the realization that she would never fix that relationship yep, was heartbreaking. And, you know, you and I have said this, I think we've said this before on the show that grieving complicated people is a very hard and complicated process. Yeah. It's sometimes like, how do you even know where to start? 
Exactly. Yeah. And there's just so many conflicting feelings around it, you know? Um, so yeah, that was definitely an extremely hard time for their family. The Weinsteins are Jewish, but they're not like super strict temple going every week type Jewish, but they did sit Shiva. And Joni was surprised at that point to find matchmaking women with good attentions already trying to set her up only days after Belle's death. Oh, my Apparently, goodness. yeah, being a successful 55-year-old widower with grown children made Herbert quite the catch. He wasn't much interested in setups, but he was floored when he met beautiful Barbara only one month after Belle passed away. They had met through a business associate of Herb's, and he'd been instantly captivated. He told Joni that Barbara was 46 years old, beautiful, divorced for many years, and lived on the Upper East Side in Manhattan. Which it did sound like that was kind of where Herb wanted to go. Now that the kids were grown, they didn't need the big house in the suburbs. He had been hoping to return to the city. So Barbara had been raised in New York, where she ultimately met an uber-wealthy titan of industry named Jerome Glazer, who owned a major national steel and aluminum conglomerate and was also a real estate developer. So they were mega wealthy. The couple moved to New Orleans, where they wed and had two children, roughly the ages of Joni and her brother. When the couple divorced after 20 years of marriage, Barbara and her daughter moved to Barbara's native city, where she had remained single for the last eight years until she fell in love with Herb. Herb was smitten right away. He thought that Barbara was classy and gorgeous, and the couple shared common interests. They loved to go out to find dining establishments, take in Broadway shows, and spend hours wandering museums. I mean, a very New York <laughs> courtship. I was going to say, who doesn't? Right. <laughs> I, I think that they had the time and the means to yep. do those things, you know? Yeah. And unlike some of the other setups, Barbara didn't need a thing from Herb financially. She had received an extremely generous settlement from her ex-husband and was more than comfortable. They had committed to keeping actually their funds separate. Okay. Yeah, they just really enjoyed each other's company. That's what it came down to. And Herb was very proud to be seen with Barbara, who was a very put together, very pretty woman. Joni was delighted that her father had met someone who made him happy. She knew that he really, really did deserve it after the two years of heartbreaking yeah. caretaking that he had done for Belle. Yeah. I mean, that is a torturous process that goes it's on and on. Really huge of Joni to see that that's what he deserves because I feel like a lot of children probably would have a hard time with their parents. Yes, moving especially on and- only one month after yeah. the death. But yeah. Joni absolutely recognized that when somebody is terminally ill yeah. for years, you know, the process of mourning them happens during their life as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, yeah. So she she was cognizant of all of this and she was happy that he seemed really happy. But she did feel a shift very quickly. Within months, he wanted to move into Barbara's Upper East Side apartment with her, and he prepared the house to be sold. But at the time, Joni was 20 years old, and she was working in the city and partying in the city, but she was still living in the house. And he basically, within months of her mother's death and these major changes in her life, was like, hey, you got to move out. 
I'm moving into the city. I'm with this woman now. Everything's different to the point where she said that one time she was sleeping and a real estate agent came in with a client and they were like ignoring the fact that she was in bed. And the guy was like, well, is that included in it? Talking about her alarm clock because apparently her dad was selling the house and all the belongings in it. Oh my God. I thought you were going to say that he was saying that about her. And I was like, yeah. not okay. <laughs> not okay. That's what she said in the book. She was like, I'm not included. I'm not included. <laughs> you know? And so it was like, as what well, as much as she was happy for him, the change so soon after her mother's death was kind of a whiplash feeling, especially because she had to try to gather all of her things and any mementos from the house because yeah. seemingly her dad just wanted to leave his whole past behind. Yeah. And so it was it was a lot. It was a lot for her. And at this point, she realized that her dad's kind of level of empathy and involvement in her life seemed to be changing. Okay. He had always been so involved, so helpful, so willing to drop anything and help her. And now it was almost like she couldn't figure out if it was because she was 20. So she's technically an adult now, but he was basically like, yeah, I'm selling the house. So you got to get out. Good luck. Like there was no, do you need help with movers? Do you need me to help you pack up anything? Do you need financial assistance in finding a new apartment? Yeah. Yeah. You know, which a lot of times parents do, you know? Well, of course. And if they're still living with you. Yeah. They're still living with you. You'd think they would be like, Hey, we got to You know, we got to figure something out for both of our exit strategies here. So that was like the first inkling to Joni that her relationship with her father was changing. Okay. The warmth that she had so enjoyed for so many years had seemed to evaporate or, you know, perhaps Herb's emotional energy that he had spent on his children and then on his wife's cancer battle was now completely shifted to Barbara, whom he was completely head over heels in love with. Yeah. So Barbara's daughter reported that she got along extremely well with Herb. She thought he had a great sense of humor and she liked the way he treated her mother. Unfortunately, the same could not be said about Barbara and Joni. Oh. Yeah. So the two got off to a rocky start right away and the relationship never really improved. I guess at their first meeting... Barbara brought like these used presents to give Joni. Like it was like one thing was like this opened packet of makeup and then a purse that had clearly been used before, like as presents. And Joni was just kind of confused about why she thought she needed, you know, these hand-me-downs. Like she was like, if she brought me like a bottle of wine or like a bouquet of flowers, I would have been like, oh my God, that's so sweet. But it was just so off. Some you know, people, some people have really strange gift etiquette. Yeah. Like, it's <laughs> I, not also, like I don't expect a gift at a first meeting, even if they're coming to my house at all, you know? So she was just kind of thrown by it. And obviously Barbara came from a very moneyed background. I mean, she was raised in Manhattan. She had married this unbelievably wealthy man and had been living in that lifestyle for so long and then had her own apartment on the Upper East Side. So there was definitely a difference in the way that they were used to behaving. And so I think that Joni thought that she was a little snobbish and hard to relate to. Like uh, like Joni described it as that she was kind of like a brisk handshake while Joni's a warm hug. Okay. You know, they just had a difference in the way that they behaved and in, in lived in the world. And, and this was on display during the second time that they met when... 
Barbara and Herb came back over to the house in New Jersey before it was sold. And I guess that Joni had invited a friend over as well. So it was Barbara, Herb, Joni, and her friend. And they were having cocktails together. And when Joni's friend got up to refresh people's drinks, I guess Barbara snapped, well, don't put any drugs in it. Um, what kind of drugs are we talking about here? Yeah, Joni jokes in the book that she should have laughed like, we would never waste those on you, you know? I know. It's so it's so hard when you like think of the best comeback like but later, 10 yeah. minutes later. It's like, <laughs> I should have said that at the time. But yeah, it was just really like Joni's friend is like, of course not. And they like looked to Barbara like it should be a joke or was it a joke? But she seemed dead serious. Hmm. So unfortunately, it was like little comments and gestures like this that seem small, but they just kind of added up to inability for Joni and Barbara to really see eye to eye, you know? Yep. And this was a huge bummer given that Joni had had such a hard time with her own mother. Like she had been really looking forward to getting to know Barbara in a totally different way and, and hopefully having some warm and mothering figure in her life at some point, you know? Sorry, babes. Yeah. I mean, it also could be your dad's taste in women. Totally. Totally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I mean, it, it, it does suck. I hope Joni has some like good girlfriends in her life too. She does. She has phenomenal, phenomenal friends. She talks about her friends a ton in this book. And she has lifelong friends that were her childhood friends from elementary school. One friend of hers that they are still best friends this day that she met when she was growing up in New Jersey was actually Alan Alda, the actor from MASH, his family. And his daughter, Elizabeth, is to this day her best friend. Amazing. Yeah. So she talks about in the book how glamorous and fun it was. Like she got to go to LA with the Aldas and like go on set at MASH and like go to these cool, yeah, restaurants afterwards with the cast and and stuff. So she had this really cool upbringing with them. And I guess they were family friends. So the Aldas were family friends with Joni's family. But yeah, she has great, great friends, which I think is, you know, you and I have talked about this too. Sometimes you don't have the biological family you wish you did. And it's so important to find those connections and find your own chosen family and the people you surround yourself with that treat you like family and are there for you when you need them. And they're the people you can run to and that you love and you can laugh with, you know? Yep. So luckily, Joni definitely has that in her life. And well, Herb was really happy. I mean, he thought Barbara was just the cat's pajamas. So he proposed and the couple was wed on February 6th, 1983, only 13 months after Belle had died. Wow. Okay. Yeah. The new Weinsteins held their wedding reception at the legendary Tavern on the Green restaurant in Central Park. Wow. I know. It's fancy. So over the next few years, Joni and her brother again noticed a decrease in their father's ability to empathize with his children or support them in times of crisis. Now, Joni has had a really interesting life and she has gone through some shit, guys. We're going to talk about a couple occasions in her life that are just mind boggling. But in one situation, uh, it was ended up happening several months after the wedding a gas line leaked and caused a gigantic explosion. It caused an entire building next door to Joni's to explode. Okay, in the city? Yeah, uh, she is was in um, Hackensack at this point. Okay, okay. So like across the river, I think. Cool. I don't know a lot about actual New York City geography. So if I said something weird wrong, I apologize there. 
So she wasn't right in the city, but it was, a, they're both major big apartment buildings. And I guess that the apartment building that exploded was between her and a highway. Okay. And at first she thought that like an 18 wheeler had crashed or something yep. because it made such a huge noise. And then she came out and every window in her apartment was smashed open and the flames from the exploded building next door were coming into her apartment. Um, That's so terrifying. So terrifying. So she and the other residents were all lucky. Everybody saved their life. But the apartment was pretty much donezo, you know, just based on the fire damage just from the other building exploding. Wild. Yeah. And so she's still in her early 20s at this point, still young. This was her first apartment other than living with her parents. So she went to a payphone to call her dad at five in the morning and tell him what happened. And she opened with, hey, you're probably going to see this on the news. And I wanted to let you know that it was the building right next to mine that exploded. And yes, my windows were blown out. And yes, there was fire coming into my apartment, but I'm okay. I'm okay, dad. And she said that he was just like, okay, is that it? And she was like, I mean, I I guess so. I just, I guess I was just calling to tell you I'm I'm all right. And he was like, well, I'm glad. Okay, I'm gonna go back to bed. Talk to you later. And she was just stunned that he wouldn't say, oh my God, what do you need? What can I get you? Do you need to come stay with us? Like, what kind of help can I provide? Yeah. You know? What any other parent would say to their kids. Exactly. And that's what she says in the book. She's like, any other parent would do this. And she was kind of trying to figure out why. She was like, was my mom, as much as she thought maybe her mom didn't care about her, was her mom the one that was like encouraging him to be more helpful and she didn't know it behind the scenes? Like she was like, even as much as my mom and I didn't get along, my mom would have been like, oh, we're coming, you know? Yeah. And so she's like, is it just like Barbara doesn't want him to come or does he just really not care? It was very confusing. And yeah. Yeah. And this was another occasion where she saw the divide growing between herself and her father. So his feeling was heightened when she got into a terrible car accident a couple of years later. I know, this poor woman. And this accident was so bad that it forced her to be in traction in a Manhattan hospital for 10 days. What does that mean? So traction is like when you, you know, when you see somebody in the hospital and they have like their leg in a cast like up, you know, and it's being elevated. And sometimes it's multiple parts of their body. That's what it was like for Joni. She could not move. So they literally had to keep her in the hospital with certain parts of her body elevated because of the damage and the swelling. And of course now this is, I think the eighties at this point. So, you know, you don't have your phone, you don't have a streaming service, you have nothing to like entertain you. So you really rely on visitors bringing things to you, bringing books to you, bringing something to you to keep you entertained. And the specialty hospital she had to be in for her injuries was located in Manhattan only five minutes walking away from Herb and Barbara's apartment. And she was there for 10 days and Herb did not visit her a single time. Oh my God, that's devastating. Devastating. She's just laying there every day thinking about it because there's nothing else to do. Her brother came to visit her though. It's just super, super duper sad. So yeah, so it wasn't just Joni too. Joni's brother had noticed the same thing. He told her that he and one of his friends had started calling Herb the man from planet feel not because he seemed to have no empathy and no understanding of other people's emotions. 
Okay. Joni's brother did not have much love for Barbara either, who was apparently known to disparage him about his weight and career during social occasions. To the point where she would be insulting him to his face in front of his father. And he said that Herb wasn't defending his son. He wasn't saying, hey, don't talk to my son like that in front of me or anything. And so to the point where Joni's brother was like, I don't even know if I want a relationship with either one of them at this point, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Joni sadly decided to let go of the once close relationship that she had had with Herb and focus on her own flourishing career. She was now throwing these large scale marketing events for major corporations. And of course, she had this thriving social life with dear friends like the ones that I mentioned, like Elizabeth Alda. But she also had a ton of other people in her corner. Like she talks about them and thanks them in her book. So luckily, she had a very robust friend circle. She also had traveled to San Francisco for business. And while she was there, she absolutely fell in love with the city, which I totally get. I lived there for six years and you know how crazy I was about San Francisco. I know. I never got it. You never got it. Nathaniel lived there too. And I don't think he likes it as much as I do either. But she has this beautiful moment that she describes so well in her memoir about the first time she goes over the Golden Gate Bridge and this amazing feeling like of seeing these this huge arch and the beautiful color of like the orange bridge like set against the Pacific, the color of the Pacific Ocean, which you know, you live in LA. There's nothing in the world like the color of the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> Can you tell I am sad and landlocked here in upstate New York right now? Oh, uh, no. I mean, there's really, really magical moments of San Francisco, but as a whole, it's like, you, you, yeah, we've you, been I talking, know you love it. I do. We've been talking a little bit back and forth about how certain situations like the homeless situation and crime has gotten worse, but she's got rent control. So our gal, Joni, is not going anywhere. She's like, they're going to bring me out of this rent control apartment in a casket. That's how I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So basically she was in San Francisco and she totally fell in love with it. And she's like, you know what? What do I have to lose? I lost my mom. I have kind of no relationship with my dad these days. You know, I love my brother, but he's got his own life, his own business going on in New York. I think I'm going to make this, this big move to a place that fills my heart with joy as one should. Of course. So almost nine years to the day after Joni's mother, Belle, died. Joni's plans to move were put off slightly when she received a phone call that would once again change the course of her life. Her stepmother, Barbara, her brother said on the phone, had plummeted down 12 stories and died on the sidewalk in front of the apartment building that she shared with their father. Even more shocking, her gentle father, whom no one could ever remember having even raised his voice in anger, was being arrested for her murder. Jesse, do you know what that sound is? That's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. You love Shopify. I do. I've spent the last 10 years running small businesses, and Shopify has been an essential part of the journey. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big businesses so upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. I've always been super impressed by how much Shopify simplifies some of the biggest challenges for small business owners. 
and gives business owners from down the street to around the globe the tools they need to succeed. It really does make everything so simple for small business owners, everything from designing an entire e-commerce website to being able to ship globally with a bunch of different shipping carriers. I mean, it really consolidates all of the questions and concerns with starting up a business and takes care of it in one place for you. With Shopify, you can reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. You can synchronize your online and in-person sales and gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. And for our listeners, we're thrilled to share that you can go to shopify.com slash lovemurder for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash lovemurder right now. That's shopify.com slash lovemurder. Jesse, let's be real. I think we can all probably up our fruit and veggie game. Our New Year's cleanses may be over, but the desire to get more clean and healthy veggies into our diet for the full year remains. Oh, yeah. And that's why all year long, I'm keeping my freezer stocked with Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest is the easiest way to get more fruits and veggies into my day every day. They have my back with delicious food that's good for me and good for the planet. I am drinking my smoothie right now. Daily Harvest delivers delicious harvest bowls, flatbreads, smoothies, and more all built on organic fruits and vegetables right to your door. And it conveniently stays fresh in your freezer. Andy, we have been all over the things over here. I'm doing the chickpea and coconut curry harvest bake tonight, and my daughter loves the kale and sweet potato flatbread. Have you tried the broccoli and cheese harvest bowl? It's out of this world. Daily Harvest takes literally minutes to prepare and never uses preservatives, added sugar, or artificial anything. And that goes for everything. They have so many delicious options for every time of the day. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert, or just a snack. Daily Harvest has you covered. I think I'm going to eat the kale and lemongrass bowl right after we record. It's so good. My daughter's also obsessed with their little bites that you put in the freezer. She calls them mommy's cold things. So she's like, (laughs) can I have mommy's cold things now? (laughs) Daily Harvest is all about preserving and protecting the earth for current and future generations to come. From their recyclable and compostable packaging to investing in organic farming practices and reducing food waste, you can feel good about the choices you're making physically and for the environment. Daily Harvest makes it easy to feel good about what I'm doing for myself and the planet. Go to dailyharvest.com slash lovemurder to get up to $40 off your first box. That's dailyharvest.com slash lovemurder for up to $40 off your first box. dailyharvest.com slash lovemurder. Okay, Andy, you know I love mobile games, but the one thing they're always missing is a really good story, and you know that I'm here for a great narrative. Yep. Match three games can be a lot of fun, but it seems like most of them are the same. The themes and the characters change, but overall, it's the same boring format. Until now. Switchcraft is a brand new take on match three games. As you play, you unlock pieces of a beautiful, magical, and gripping graphic novel. Switchcraft is a mobile game with a unique blend of TV-worthy writing, choose-your-own-adventure-style narrative, and thousands of magical match-three levels. Yeah, Switchcraft is exactly what I've been looking for to just chill out and give my brain a break every once in a while with just such a pleasurable game. 
It's definitely all that awesome match three gameplay, but it's set in this incredibly compelling story. So I have been playing for weeks now. I cannot put it down. In Switchcraft, you take on the role of a witch at Pendle Hill, the world's top academy of witchcraft. Play your way through hundreds of enchanting match three levels, revealing a dark and winding mystery story. All starts with the disappearance of your best friend. Oh no, Andy. (laughs) Now it's up to you to unravel the mystery of her disappearance using your magical match three skills. Along the way, you'll find unique characters, a gripping story, and even a little romance. Ooh. The best part is that your choices in the game determine the outcome of the story. So you're in the driver's seat. Download Switchcraft for free and unlock the magical mystery. Can you imagine that's your father? No. Can you imagine? And you like just settled in the new golden land of San Francisco and they're like, psych. Yep. She was already planning her move. She was one foot on the West Coast at that point when she got this terrible news. So let's go back and talk about what happened next according to the police. So they have Barbara obviously dead on the sidewalk and Herb is in the lobby supposedly looking for his wife with scratches on his face. Herb agreed to accompany the police to his apartment on the 12th floor and on the elevator ride up, he told the police that the scratches had occurred while he was playing football the other day, which was a little weird because he's obviously this older, like white haired gentleman. So they're like, you're playing some rough contact football that ended up with your face getting scratched. And so as they're walking into the apartment, they asked him about his relationship with his wife. And he said, we've been married for eight fucking years and we get along fucking famously. Oh, dropping the F-bomb. Twice. And Joni didn't find out about this till later, but it really stuck with her because one of his Weinstein-isms, wisdoms, was that you should never swear because it just shows a lack of creativity and intelligence. Like there's so many other words that you can use. I'm sure some of our reviewers would probably say the same thing about us. (laughs) I have heard that ism before. (laughs) I have, yeah. (laughs) Although it was cute. I was talking to a listener the other day and she's like, y'all are so real and I love that you curse. (laughs) And I was like, thank you. (laughs) Thank you very fucking much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I did not say that, but I was thinking it. So yeah, so she was like, wow. When she found out about this, she's like, my dad is really not acting like himself, you know? So when they went into the apartment, the police noticed an open bedroom window immediately and informed Herbert at that point, because he was like, well, where's my wife? What's going on? They were like, well, sir, you know, now that you're sitting down in, in his study, we have to inform you that there is a woman that is fitting your wife's description deceased on the sidewalk outside. And we have not positively identified her, but we believe it is your wife. So they like break the news to him. And he had a very curious response to this. He seemed almost lacking of emotion. He seemed surprised or kind of like he was acting surprised, but he was not emoting the way a a normal person would given this news. I'm glad that they like took their time with like him, getting him upstairs, sitting him down. Like, it seems like they did that the right way. 100%. And when they told him, they said, you know, is there anyone who we can call to be with you? And he called Joni's brother, who was, I guess, in Brooklyn Heights at the time. So he was able to come right over. So yeah, Joni's brother is on the way. And they start, of course, there's many officers and detectives coming in and out of the apartment at this point. So while they're questioning him, other 
detectives are looking around the place and they found blood stains on the carpet in front of the window that had been open where they believe that Barbara had fallen from. Okay. And then Herb changed his story while talking to a different officer. He told a different officer that he got the scratches from shaving. Now, the detectives didn't buy either story. The scratches were under each eye and on his cheeks and chin, and they appeared very fresh and similar to defensive wounds. Exactly. Also, Herb's hand was black and blue and had a spot of blood on it. And he couldn't say how that had happened. And then a witness who lived in the apartment building across the street told police that they had seen a man throw a woman out of a window. Stop. Mm-hmm. Which for that bystander, for that witness who's watching it happen in real time, could you no. imagine the no. horror? No, no, Like you're across the street and screaming and you can't stop it. You just watch this guy throw a woman out of a window. It's literally terrifying. Terrifying. Like therapy. For years, years. Yeah. When confronted with the news about the witness coming forward, Herb confessed in a flat, resigned fashion. He just was like, yep, you guys got me. I don't like lying. I'm not really a liar. So I'm just going to tell you the truth. He said that he and Barbara had been arguing about his son with Barbara once more criticizing his son's weight and looks and his career choices. She apparently thought that the industry that he had gone into. And Joni asked me to keep details of her brother's life private, like his name and what he did. So I'm going to respect that. But she didn't think that what he was doing with his life and the way he looked reflected well on her. That's okay. what, yeah. Well, so that's what they did. So it doesn't really matter. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And I guess that this was not the first time that they had had this argument, okay. you know? And Herb had always just kind of ignored it. Like he lets things, you know, go off his back. Yep. He really wasn't really responding, he said. And then, and I'm only speculating because they don't know exactly why she ended up attacking him. My speculation was she was frustrated at not getting a response from Herb ever. Yep. And not being able to, you know, get his goat or get him fired up ever. So I think that she attacked him at this point to be like, if I'm scratching your face, if I'm in your face, you have to pay attention to me. You have to respond to me. So she apparently lunged at Herb, which is where the scratches came from. Okay. And he told the police that at that point when she lunged at him, something snapped that it was like when you touch a hot pan and you immediately jerk your hand back. Yeah. Only his response and he could not stop himself before it was finished was to start hitting her. So he responded by hitting her over and over again. And then when she was down on the bed, he strangled her to death. Uh, and he's very calmly telling the police all of this seemingly without emotion. Okay. He's like, and this happened, and then I responded like this. And he had no excuse for it. He had never been violent before. He had no prior record. Joni grew up with this man as a father. She can't even remember him ever yelling at her. And it came out, and he 100% murdered Barbara and I can't even imagine what she must have been thinking. 
I mean, you're having a fight and yes, it gets out of hand. And then all of a sudden the person you love that you've been married to for eight years is killing you. Yeah. So he said that afterwards he realized what he had done and he did not know. He did. He couldn't say why it happened, why he did it. All he could say is like, well, it went too far. And he was like, well, I guess I have to figure out how to get out of this one. So he went around and tried to clean the blood up at that point. Okay. And then he decided to try to stage her murder as a suicide by dropping her out of the window and trying to make it look like she jumped. Okay. So I went like in so many different directions because when you said he was in the lobby, I was like, did this guy like actually lose his mind, you know, and like didn't know where his wife went? Like, did he accidentally kill her and then didn't know? But now that he's cognizant. Oh, he's saying, he's saying I totally covered it up. And then I, I purposely like cleaned myself up and went down to the lobby and was like, has anyone seen my wife? You know, like that was, yeah. But he had like all the scratches on his face and they lied about the football. And then he said that he was shaving. It's just like so much. It's so much. And I, to me, that proves that it wasn't premeditated because he's a smart guy. Of course. If he really wanted to kill her, he would have done it in a smarter fashion because that was a mess all the way around. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, he told the officers, like, they were asking him how he did it. And it's just uh, listening to him say this. And I, unfortunately, I don't have a recording or anything, but they were describing it in Joni's book and in Kevin Davis's book that he said he scooped her up under the armpits and dragged her to the window, opened it. And then placed her on the windowsill and then grabbed her legs to flip her out the window. That's exactly how I imagined. And it's nauseating. Yeah. I mean, at first I imagined him like picking her up and throwing her because he's so big. But then when I was like actually thinking about it and her being dead, I was like, oh, that's probably how that happened. Yeah. It's just so callous when you hear it like that. Like like, if it was like a sack of flour or something. Exactly. And – Talking about a lack of empathy. If it fell on someone. Yes. This is East 72nd Street, four blocks from the park. Yeah. There's a ton of people up and down that street. Thank God that that her body didn't kill somebody else. Or like a stroller. Yes. Oh my gosh. That's horrible. Didn't we watch a documentary or listen to something about the Cecil Hotel, which one of the murders was a mystery because they were trying to figure out how these two people who seemingly didn't know each other had died together. And it was because one guy committed suicide and landed on the other woman killing her. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So thank goodness that didn't happen. But yeah, he's just telling them this very calmly. So naturally, he was immediately arrested. And Joni found this all out on the phone with her brother. Wow. The first time she saw her father after the murder was at his bail hearing. His bail was set at $100,000 and Herb was able to, yeah, just $100,000. They think it was because he was 65 years old and had lived an upstanding life for his entire life. They don't know why it was pretty, pretty low. He had gotten a really, really good defense attorney. And she said that she was surprised immediately at the bail hearing because his attorney already seemed to know him so well. Like when he spoke to him about like what a good man this guy was, what a family man, how he'd been a businessman for all of these years and he'd never even had so much as a parking ticket, you know, like she was like, wow, the lawyer was acting like he really knows him, you know, which is what good defense attorneys do. Yeah. So they managed to get him out 
of jail on bond after I think it was like three or four days that he had to spend in prison. And this new attorney, his name is, I think it's pronounced like Diermut. It's spelled D-I-A-R-M-U-I-D. But it seemed like when I looked it up how to pronounce it, it's almost pronounced like the French version of Dermot, you know? Got it. So his name is like, yep, Diermut. Dear much, uh, White, <laughs> who had represented porn mogul Larry Flint and also Klaus von Bülow, who was a man. Yeah, that's some name, huh? Uh, so we're we're going to definitely do his his case. Really? He was, mm-hmm, he was accused of killing his wife, Sonny, who was a lot older than him and very, very wealthy. Ooh, Klaus. Yes, Klaus. Oh, <laughs> you're so naughty, Klaus. Klaus. He also represented Gene Harris, which is another story I want to cover potentially someday, who killed the famous doctor author of the Scarsdale Medical Diet. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So this is a very well-known in-demand defense attorney, especially in this era of the 1980s and early 90s. Yeah. I mean, it's not surprising that his resources would help him get someone like this. 100%. So immediately, Mr. White was struck by how calm and unconcerned Herbert seemed through the entire process. He described him as emotionless, expressionless, and almost oblivious to the fact that he was in prison for killing his wife. While researching his new client, Mr. White could not find a single indication that the marriage had been troubled or that Herb had ever so much as raised his voice to Barbara in the past. In a January 28th, 1991 New York Observer article, neighbors and friends described Barbara and Herb as the perfect couple. They said that Barbara referred to her husband as her best friend and that the couple was almost always seen together holding hands as if they were newlyweds a lot younger than they actually were. A friend of Barbara said she never said a bad word about him. She trusted him completely. On further meetings, when Herb continued to lack any sort of emotional response, his attorneys made him go see a forensic psychiatrist. The psychiatrist could find no evidence of mental illness, psychopathy, mental disorder, or psychosis. So Herb was then referred to a neuropsychologist who sent him for a brain scan. Meanwhile, Joni was dealing with a father who was unrecognizable to her. Herb had been sent home to live with Joni and her brother, who were living together at the time. When her father described to Joni how he had snapped and killed Barbara, she was completely chilled and shocked. I mean, yeah. Could you imagine them sleeping under the same roof? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She was like, no, thank you. I, I cannot do this. So this is a part of her book where he describes what was going on. He said that he knew it was wrong, but he couldn't stop himself. And he admitted to Joni that he 100% killed his wife. Terrifying. So terrifying. He told Joni too, I loved Barbara. We didn't really have any problems in our relationship, you know? So Joni asked, did it feel like an out-of-body experience? Like you weren't really there? He looked perplexed and answered, "I I don't know, maybe. I asked, well, what happened next? He said that when he realized she was dead, he didn't know what to do and decided to try to make the best of the situation and clean up. There was certainly no best that could come from this situation at that point, but what he did turned out to make things much, much worse. He said he cleaned up the blood from the carpet and then shredded his shirt and flushed it down the toilet because it had blood on it. Then he decided to throw her body out of the window of their apartment in the hope that it would look like a suicide. 
once freshly redressed, he left the apartment and went to leave the building. He said that the police came into the lobby and brought him back up to the apartment and they questioned him. At first, I made up a story, but you know me, Joe. I don't lie. After a few minutes of them asking me questions in my study, I just told them the truth. I asked, well, why did you lie at all? Since this was so out of character for him, it was almost as out of character for him as being violent was. Yeah. He chuckled very slightly and said, well, if there was ever a time to lie, that would have been it. Wow. So like the attorney, Joni also noticed how detached her father seemed from reality. And it unnerved her almost as much as the crime. And like, you know, you were just saying, are you going to sleep under the same roof? as him. She was way too creeped out to spend the night in the apartment with her father. So she ended up giving her father her bedroom and she slept with a friend until her father was out of the house. Yeah. Joni. (laughs) Yeah. Joni said that she believed something at that point was truly, truly wrong with Herbert. Well, Joni and Herb's defense attorney were absolutely right. Herb's brain scans showed a massive cyst in his brain. This cyst was the size of an orange. What? Yep. So I sent you that picture. I told you not to look at it. Look at it right now. Look at that brain scan. And guys, I'm going to make sure that this week the Instagram is up earlier. So hopefully you can go and look at the Instagram while you're listening to the podcast or right after so that you can see how insane this brain scan is. So I'm assuming that the huge black mass is the huge black mass is mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. So it's over his left temporal frontal lobe, exactly where you do not want damage to be. So both Joni's book and Kevin's book go into details of one of the most famous neuroscience stories and how it relates to this case, which is so fascinating. Have you ever heard of Phineas Gage? No. Okay. So in 1848, like this guy was basically working in mining, I think for a railroad going in. And so he was like putting, tamping down like gunpowder with an iron rod. Okay. And it went off while he was doing it. And the iron rod shot through his chin and I have heard of him. I have heard of him. Yep. Through his brain and exploded out the top. And he stayed conscious the entire time. Yep. So this is really like the first kind of birth of us talking about neuroscience because of what happened with him and his brain afterwards. Yep. So I think it's just fascinating. It's totally related to this case. But I want you guys to come back tomorrow and listen to the interview. So I'm going to have Joni tell it tomorrow. Okay, cool. So yeah, come back tomorrow and you'll get all the deets on Phineas Gage in 1848. And I know some of you like an old timey story. So back to Herb. What he had was called an arachnoid cyst that had been developing for many, many, many years. The doctors believe that it had likely been inside his brain since birth and it had just grown larger and larger. Wow. And so you would never know about this from like blood work. It would have to be like a CAT scan. You would have to need to get like a MRI or a PET scan or something like that in order to see this. So you would have to know that something was wrong. And he did tell one doctor that apparently at some point in the late 40s, I think when he was a young man, 
he had had some terrible headaches and amnesia issues. Okay. But it had passed. So he hadn't thought about any sort of brain or head problems. He had never had any sort of, you know, head injury that we talk about with a lot of serial killers who have damaged their frontal lobe. He just had this cyst that was slowly taking over that part of his brain to the point that there was evidence that his skull was growing to accommodate it. Oh my God. So at first, of course, the first thing that they have to figure out is, is this a cancerous tumor? Yeah. And it was not. It turned out to be a benign cyst that was filled with liquid. Okay. So the problem was that it was pressing on various parts of Herb's brain, particularly his frontal lobe. And we have discussed in the past, you know, that obviously the frontal lobe controls impulses. It helps you see life from other people's perspectives and have empathy and think about what you're doing. All things that help you to not be violent, essentially. So, you know, when we see things like serial killers who had a million concussions and damaged their frontal lobe or... When longtime football players are violent and beat their partners or spouses or even kill someone or kill themselves, it's usually because of that concussion damage as well. In Kevin's book, he also talks about how they're discovering it more and more in military vets because they're surrounded by exploding things all the time. And a lot of times they have to dive out of the way and hit their head while getting out of the way of IEDs and stuff like that. Okay. So basically that's what it was impacting, unfortunately. And their theory now is that that is why he snapped. He could not control the impulse to fight back and he didn't stop then. Wow. Yes. It was a very medically fraught situation and very scary for Joni to contend with. So she explains the entire medical situation in her book as follows. An arachnoid cyst is a sack of fluid that can occur between the arachnoid membrane that covers the brain and the brain itself, affects a very small portion of the population, and typically doesn't cause problems or require medical interventions. The arachnoid membrane got its name because of its fine spiderweb-like appearance of its delicate fibers which extend down through the space under it. Due to its unusually large size and the situation at hand, it seemed like something had to be done. But the typical treatment options weren't options at all for Herb. The neurologist said that if they attempted surgery to remove or drain the cyst or tried to install a shunt that could drain the cyst slowly over time, he would likely die on the operating table. The doctor said that if he did pull through, he would probably become severely mentally disabled because large parts of his brain would literally move around since the operation would leave significant empty space in his skull and remove pressure on the neighboring parts of his brain that had been displaced. He told us a frightening story of a woman who had had an arachnoid cyst removed and how that had caused her entire personality to change, how she had become obsessed with collecting dead plants in her apartment to the point that she could no longer fit in it with them and how she could not live a decent independent life. He didn't even bother asking my father if he wanted to subject himself to the surgery because it was obviously not a viable option. So Joni wouldn't actually see the real images of her father's cyst until years and years later, like literally when she Googled her father later on. But they are shocking. 
just shocking. I mean, Andy, you saw it. Yeah. So while this was convenient in some ways for the defense attorney and definitely explained the gradual change in Herb's empathy and behavior toward his children because it was just slowly growing. Yeah. And it, of course, explained a little bit what happened to his wife. It also was very challenging for the defense at the same token. Number one, PET scans were still a relatively new technology in 1991 and had never been used in the guilt or innocence phase of a criminal court case. Yeah. So apparently they had been used in the sentencing portion, which is like, you know, when somebody's like, don't give this person that many years because the mitigating factor is they had a brain tumor or something. Yeah. But they had never been used to determine guilt or innocence. And so if it was allowed into evidence, the case would become one of legal precedent. So clearly the prosecutor would fight like the Dickens to get these tossed out. And he really did. He really tried not to get these images admitted into evidence. And number two, there was also a real moral quandary here. So if they do allow the scans into evidence and the jury is convinced that it was indeed the gigantic cyst that altered Herb's behavior in a way that made him not responsible for his actions and therefore not guilty, what the heck are you going to do with him? Yeah. If the cyst made him do it and they can't remove the cyst without killing him, then who's to say he won't kill again? Yep. And just snap, you know? Yeah, you can't just free a man with a ticking time bomb in his head. Oh my God. So scary. It's so scary. And there's not really a good answer because on one hand, I completely see how this scientific evidence makes me believe that he was not fully able to understand or comprehend his actions in the moment. Yeah. But at the same token, I don't want him around my family. I don't want him on the streets, you know? So they first have to have a fry hearing to see if the PET scans and the other, you know, neuroscientific evidence would be admitted. Obviously, the defense wanted it in. The prosecutor argued that PET scanning was an unreliable technology that had only been invented 16 years before. There were only 50 to 60 PET scanners in the United States in 1991 And at the time, they were not standardized in any way at all. And they often yielded inconsistent readings. Okay. To sum it up, the prosecutor said that the scientific evidence that the defense wanted to present did not belong in court because it wasn't truly proven. The prosecutor also argued that if this cyst caused the violence, why hadn't there ever been any sort of other violent attack in Herb's life? Like it all of a sudden seemed very convenient to the prosecutor. Okay. So I have a theory about that. According to what I read, it seems like Herb hadn't actually seen any combat when he was in the Merchant Marines during World War II. And he had never been in a physical fight in his entire life. So my speculation is that when Barbara scratched him, and he was physically attacked for the first time in his long life. Yep. It flipped that switch. Yeah. It did something to him that it could have occurred if like he was mugged or if, you know, somebody else had gotten into a fight with him earlier. But those things had never happened before. So that would be at least if I was his defense attorney, I would say, yeah, it never happened before because he was never attacked before. Exactly. Exactly. 
Ultimately, it was decided that the PET scans would be admitted into evidence, which is why, yep, I think so too. This case is a landmark case and the birth of neuro law. Whoa. Yeah, isn't this crazy? Yeah. So they were now preparing for the actual murder trial. And shockingly, in the days leading up to it, Herb got a new girlfriend. What? Yeah, y'all, I don't know what to tell you. If you're single and this guy, this 60 something year old man with an orange sized cyst in his brain that could maybe turn him into a homicidal maniac at any point and is currently on bail for murdering his wife and throwing her out the window of a 12th story apartment. Yet he got a girlfriend. (laughs) Also, though, like, did she know about all this? Yes, she knew about it. Okay. Yeah. Apparently, Herb answered her personal ad in New York Magazine. The woman's name was Birdie, and she was the opposite of Barbara in every way, except that they were both roughly the same age. They were both a decade younger than Herbert himself. Okay. She lived in a very heavily forested area of upstate New York, like completely rural, with four dogs that she had rescued herself, and she taught special ed. Uh... Yeah, she could not be more different than his society Upper East Side wife. Yeah, wow. So by now, Joni had actually moved to San Francisco and she only met Birdie when she had come home for her brother's wedding, but she was stunned at her father's new rural lifestyle as he recounted how he took long walks with Birdie's dogs in the woods and they had cozy cabin nights where they would stay in and cook a batch of chili together. It was a far cry from, you know, all of the tavern on the green upscale eateries, Broadway shows that he had been enjoying so much with Barbara. Yeah. And I have no idea what this woman was thinking. I'm going to make sure I ask Joni a lot of questions about this relationship tomorrow. So the trial was just about to start. The prosecutor didn't believe that Herb's cyst had anything to do with the murder. He thought that it was a convenient medical abnormality and planned to argue that Herb had killed Barbara in order to pay off gambling debts with an inheritance from Barbara after making her murder look like a suicide. Huh. First of all, there was, you know, obviously history of people with these types of cysts living normal lives and not killing people. So he's like, many people do it. Many people have cysts. They don't kill anyone. So this seems like a convenient excuse for me. Herb did like to gamble, but he always set himself a very specific budget. Okay. Because he was just like that type of person. And it's like, well, if I'm down this much, then I quit. And he was 100% like that all of the time. There was also, there's no evidence of these giant debts. Like what debt was he paying off? Because he still had tons of money to hire the very best and most expensive defense attorney in New York City. But here's some other things that the prosecutor thought. Apparently, he had found out that while Bell was dying, Herb had been in contact with something called the Hemlock Society, which is an organization that helps people through difficult end-of-life decisions for terminally ill people. Apparently, Herb had been in contact with the organization again before Barbara's death. But he said that it was at Barbara's request because her father was sick and dying. And that part is true. Her father did die. So he said that's why he was in contact with them again. So there was a suggestion that Herb had even killed Belle by overdosing her with the morphine that kept her pain under control. 
therefore making him a black widower. Yeah. So I generally agree with the prosecution in the vast majority of our cases, you know, usually. But this one did sound a little iffy for the reasons that number one, clearly Bell was absolutely riddled with this very deadly cancer. Yes. And they had known from the beginning that her chance of survival was very, very, very slim. So I don't think that he would have killed her. And even if he did, if like he, with her consent, gave her an overdose of morphine, I'm, I mean, I got to say, I wouldn't mind if I was dying of very, very painful terminal cancer, if I took a nice little dose of morphine and drifted off, you know? No, yes, totally. Yeah. That, that would so not it be doesn't the worst way to go. Like yeah, and especially, I mean, Joni said that her father was so obsessed with her mother and really was so devoted and by her side for her entire cancer struggle. And he wanted desperately just to have any more time with her. It just seems very unlikely. Yeah. And that number two, like I said, he did enjoy gambling, but there was no evidence that he had these debts. He had money. When they looked at his bank accounts, it wasn't like he was terribly in the red or anything here, you know? And Joni also told me that there was no financial motive as he did not have a life insurance policy on Barbara. And the two had already (sighs) talked to their children and worked this out with their attorneys when they were married, that neither the other person was going to inherit the other spouse's wealth. Yeah, it seemed like they both kept their accounts separate too, you mentioned. Totally separate. And that anything that was Barbara's was going to go to her children. Well, anything that was Herb's was going to go to his children. And that was the rule. So there was like a clause that, you know, when you have a lot of money, your estate makes like dividends every year. Yeah. Like, like you, your estate, like you essentially have it invested in different things. So I guess that they would maybe get the dividends or whatever money their combined estates generated. But then when both spouses died, they wouldn't get anything really from each other and the kids would get everything from their respective parent. Okay. There was really no financial motive to killing her. Yeah. It doesn't seem like that to me. Yeah. And then of course there's the whole fact that it doesn't seem like this was a planned thing because it was executed so poorly if it had been a plan. Yeah. Yeah. So in my opinion, this is a pretty flimsy argument. And the prosecutor did fear that with potentially this not so solid, you know, argument and these insane PET scans that showed this unbelievably ginormous cyst in Herb's brain that he might get off scot-free if they decide to go full bore through trial. Yeah, but I feel like if he gets off scot-free, I feel like he would have to be under some sort of surveillance. He would most likely have to be in a mental facility, I think, a mental health facility for monitoring after this because of his tendency towards violence. Yeah. Okay, so likewise, the defense still didn't know what the jury would think about a cyst that causes homicidal tendencies that can't be removed or whether they would believe in the technology altogether because it was so new still at the time. Yep. So both cases aren't really sure of their own case. So they decided eventually to meet in the middle and a plea deal was struck on the very day that jury selection was set to begin. On December 14th, 1992, Herbert Weinstein pled guilty to manslaughter and was sentenced to a minimum of seven years in prison with a maximum of 21 years. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense because he's older. 
The prosecutor said that given the fact that Herb was already nearly 67 years old and life expectancy wasn't, you know, as high as it is today. Yeah. It could end up being a life sentence anyway. Barbara's family had agreed to the terms of the plea because they were just really eager to put the whole painful public portion of mourning Barbara behind them and get the chance to privately grieve her without the media scrutiny. Yep. Okay. Every day that they had to deal with this and talk about it and it was in the newspapers just hurt them more. In their victim impact statements, Barbara's mother said that she had cried every single day of the nearly two years it had been since her daughter was killed and that she would never be able to shake the feelings of betrayal and heartbreak. Oh God. Because everybody thought that Herb was a wonderful spouse. Can you imagine your child being killed by someone you thought loved them? No. And like you also probably loved, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yes. And Barbara's daughter spoke about the loving relationship that she had had with her mother. She said that they had been best friends, that they talked on the phone every single day. And all of that had been ripped away from her. And she said that she was just left with chronic nightmares that she could not shake no matter what she did. No. They had agreed to the plea deal, but it didn't ease their pain. Meanwhile, the press did not give one toot about this cyst, thinking that it somehow exonerated him at all, because all of the headlines the next day were about Herbert, the wife killer, which, I mean, is accurate, even if he did have extenuating circumstances. Yeah. Before Herbert reported to prison in upstate New York, he married Bertie. Married Bertie. You have got to be kidding me. With her full well knowing that he was going to be in prison for a minimum of seven years. I I cannot wait to ask Joni more about this relationship because it is <laughs> blowing my mind. While Herbert was serving his sentence, Joni built a really meaningful life for herself in San Francisco, but that life was changed forever when she was in a horrific car accident in which her heel bone, I think it's called something like a calcinus, calcinus. I know we have medical (laughs) professionals who listen to us and I nailed the other episode, but I'm not nailing this one, guys. It is your heel bone and it apparently it is the absolute worst bone in your body to break because it's very difficult to fix. And of course, you put all of your bodily weight on it when you stand and walk and move. And she, I guess the the way that truck hit her car, it smashed it to smithereens. Like it was in powder pieces, you know? Oh my God, that's so scary. Yeah. So though doctors did their absolute best, Joni was left to suffer through multiple corrective surgeries and she experienced heartbreaking chronic pain. She still does to this day. She was unable to walk or travel or do much of anything for years because of this injury. Despite her chronic pain and injury, Joni found both work and love on the internet when the internet was really just beginning to be a capital letter T thing in the (laughs) mid-90s. Mid-90s, baby, it was all AOL, signing on. Mom, get off the phone, you know? ASL. (laughs) Exactly. So she met and married a man that she actually met in a chat room, though they did go on to divorce eight years later. She also started multiple businesses doing essentially electronic frontier marketing. So do you remember Second Life? Yeah. 
So Second Life was this like internet world in which you had an avatar of yourself and you could interact with other people who were really them behind their avatar. And they were called residents of Second Life. And you could, you know, buy your own house, buy your own clothes, change your looks. You could go to virtual concerts. You could go to sporting events. You could hang out at cafes. And it's kind of the the first gasp of the metaverse. Like she yeah. was really ahead of her time. And this in Second Life was really ahead of its time. Like I was talking about this with Nathaniel and he was explaining that it's very relevant for what's going on today because like the biggest internet happening ever to date is Travis Scott did a concert on Fortnite in 2020. And apparently 12.3 million people were all watching at the same time. 12.3 million. That's crazy. Yeah. Dan talks about that all the time. Yeah. And it was happening in the game Fortnite. Yep. So that was kind of like Second Life was the beginning of that. And Joni was so smart. She saw a niche in this where corporations weren't marketing in Second Life. So she started helping corporations market in the game by developing and sponsoring special events or special cafes or stores that people enjoyed going to and experiencing because they got like extra perks or free clothes or free something, you know? So cool. Yeah, she worked with Nestle, Colgate, the World Bank, and even the release of one of the Harry Potter movies. Wow. Isn't that cool? Yeah. I think it's really cool too because this is kind of like what I was doing at my startup in San Francisco like years later. Yep. So she also flourished as a mosaic artist, showing her work in many high-end San Francisco galleries and even being featured in El Decor magazine. Despite her physical challenges and chronic pain, she built a happy and fulfilling life for herself. Meanwhile, Herb was denied parole several times. The cis defense was a tough one when you're trying to get paroled because like I said, you know, he's saying it was the cis that made me do it and they're going, well, you still have it. So you're going to yeah. stay locked up. Ooh. He also probably didn't help his case in 2001 when he was at a parole hearing and he corrected one of the board members' grammar. The question was, you are reappearing before the parole board for the second time. Is that right? And he said, I am reappearing for the first time. This is my second appearance. Oh. You don't want to be a smart ass in front of the parole board. <laughs> Baseball. Baseball. Yeah. In 2006, after serving 14 years, so double the minimum sentence, Herbert Weinstein was released from prison as an arthritic old man. His release was conditional. He needed to stay in an assisted living facility and he was not allowed to have booze or guns. Wife number three, Birdie, had stayed with him long enough to make him look good to the parole board, but divorced him shortly after his release. Oh, no. I know she stayed with him all of that time and then peaced at the end. Weird. In 2009, Joni saw her father for the first time since he had been incarcerated. Her foot pain and an autoimmune condition had made cross-country travel exceedingly difficult for years. Herb was now in his 80s. He was wheelchair-bound and living in an assisted living facility in Tuxedo, New York. Herb had actually loved the facility. He had made friends. He played penny anti-poker. And Joni's brother frequently visited him and took him out to restaurants. Nice. Okay, good. So yeah, he was having a good time for a few years. But the facility had notified Herb 
that he was going to be required to move to a nursing home because he now required more medical attention than they could really give him. And this was something that he did not want to do. So he suggested to Joni over the phone to try to get her to come visit that he would rather die than spend his final years as a medicated zombie in a nursing home and that she should come see him soon because he did not think that he'd be living much longer. Wink, wink. Okay. Thanks to the Hemlock Society. Yeah. So she said in her book, I asked her what he thought would happen after he died. And this was at the very first time and only time she saw him after he was incarcerated. He said, I will go to the place where all righteous souls go. I was struck by his belief that after doing one of the worst things a person could ever do, he thought of himself as a righteous soul. I knew in my heart that he did the best he could with what he had. I did not believe that he murdered out of choice. Still, it felt odd. Then he rolled his wheelchair over to a fiberboard dresser and took out an old mayonnaise jar full of coins from the bottom drawer, his penny ante poker winnings. He laughed and announced to my brother and me, here's your inheritance. We all laughed and I told my brother to keep my half and put it towards the locks and bagels that he had bought for our last breakfast together, knowing the entire contents of the jar wouldn't cover it. Shortly after I traveled back to San Francisco, Herb killed himself. Oh my gosh. On June 24th, 2009, Herb took an overdose of pain pills that he had been hoarding and met his fate in the afterlife. Whether that be where the righteous souls go or not, it's not for you or I to say. 25 years later, Barbara's daughter told author Kevin Davis that though she didn't buy the cis defense, she did believe that he, quote, flipped out for the moment. Anyone who would do such a horrific thing is crazy in that moment. I didn't think he would do it again, but I do think he should have been punished. Do I think he would have been a serial killer? No. People snap all the time. Barbara's daughter had raised two children of her own and had become the president of a philanthropic organization and eventually moved back to New Orleans, where she was raised. She told Kevin Davis that she no longer had anger towards Herbert, saying, I worked out my anger a long time ago about this, so I'm not really angry. Sad? Yes. Angry? No. Did Herbert deserve a second chance? No, he did not. Herbert Weinstein lives on in medical and legal journals as Spider Sistkoff, the clever pseudonym that medical professionals had assigned to Herbert so they would discuss his case without breaking patient confidentiality. Spider was, of course, for the arachnoid cyst, and Kopf means head in German, so essentially spider cishead. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Because of Herbert's precedent-setting case, I also think um, Spider Sistkoff would be like a good like dark metal band. So what? Golf. <laughs> yeah. Because of Herbert's precedent setting case, neuroscience was allowed into the courtroom. And there are scholars that study and teach this case in legal and medical schools across the country. Joni jokes that Herb would have gotten a real kick out of his brain getting him into Harvard, though he would have obviously preferred a different route. <sighs> wow. Okay. So what a legacy. I mean, I don't know what it would be like to go through the rest of your life as the daughter of a murderer. No, I'm so excited to chat with her. Yeah. If you guys want to find out what it's like, tune in tomorrow for our special bonus episode. Jesse's very excited. 
I'm so excited, guys. I'm finally getting over my uh, fear of interviewing authors. And in <laughs> fact, I heard from David Domine, the author who wrote the wonderful book that I talked about in the last episode about the case with Joey Bannis and Jeffrey Munt, who killed poor Jamie Carroll. And I think he's going to come on the show too. So I'm really excited to start getting these backstory, behind the scenes, dirty details about these cases. Totally. In conclusion, if you've noticed marked changes in the behavior of your loved ones, and it's very strange, maybe you should encourage them to get a brain scan. Yeah, that would definitely include if your father isn't extremely concerned about you just barely escaping a fiery death. Yeah, I would say that's kind of a a dead giveaway right there. Big deal. Big deal. Big deal. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love and your brain health. So no one gets murdered. Oh, we love you so much. Talk to you tomorrow. Bye. Bye. 